Last summer, I was standing down there, and I got to preach what Brad called a sermonette, which I know you were all offended by because he also said those were were Christianettes. But you should be encouraged because apparently we've all graduated to, like, green belt or maybe even black belt because I get to preach a sermon today. So you're all Christians. So this is good. This is good news. Um, But, yeah, I've enjoyed being the paid intern this summer. It's been a really good experience. Um, I've learned a lot, and I'm looking forward to going back to Athens with a lot of the experiences I've had over the summer. Um, So with that, I'm not really going to waste too much time because I was talking to to Brad yesterday. I was like, God, I've got all this stuff I want to say. How do I say it all? And he was like, well, just don't take too long to make sure it's, you know, not terrible. I was like, okay. <laughs> I was hoping for that. Um, I want to talk through Philippians, not the whole letter, so don't, don't freak out, just a portion of it. Um, so just turn to chapter 1, and while you're doing that, not that that'll take a very long time, but while you're doing that, I just want to give a background into Philippians, the, the church, the letter, just what, what's all been going on behind the scenes with this. And this might take a little bit longer than I anticipate. I was really trying to condense it as best I can. Um, but it begins with God and creation. And so I'm going to skip that and I'm going to jump to Jesus at the cross. So you're actually getting the abridged version. So, so Jesus, he comes to earth as a man and he proclaims the gospel. What's the gospel? Well, he says that everybody is sinful and wicked and evil and we deserve to go to hell. So Jesus makes a lot of friends and he moves on with his life to the point where they all want him to die. So they kill him. And even as he's dying, he proclaims the gospel to the guy next to him so that that guy becomes a Christian while he's dying next to the guy who's saving him. So then, then Jesus, he, he goes away, he disappears, right? And he's, he's coming back, and he's going to take those people that, like the prisoner that he died for. Okay. In the meantime, his church is, is being built up, right? And it's the church's job, it's the church's role to go out and proclaim the same gospel that Jesus died to create. Okay. As the church is beginning... There's this man named Saul. He's, he's a Jew's Jew. I mean, the guy knows the law backwards. And he, he hates Jesus. And he kills Christians. He's, he's not our friend, right? He's not Jesus' friend. And Jesus one day beats him down in the middle of the freeway and says, Listen, you're actually not fighting against Christians. You're fighting against me. And I want you to stop because I'm God. And, and instead, of, instead of taking the lives of Christians, I want you to actually give your life so that the church will grow. Paul, uh, well, his name changes from Saul to Paul, says, yes, because when a man strikes you down blind in the middle of the road, you, you do what he says. So, so Paul sets out on several missionary journeys where he goes out and proclaims the gospel that Jesus brought to him. And he takes several journeys. He does one and ends up being persecuted a lot. But on his second journey, he takes with him a friend named Silas. 
And so he and his companion, they set out on Paul's second missionary journey, proclaiming the gospel. So he and Silas are determined to go to this territory called Asia. It's not the continent. It's a little area, I guess near Turkey. I'm not really sure. I didn't really pay much attention. But it's just a, it's like a country, right? And so he's determined to go there, but God refuses to let him. He will not let him go there. Even though Paul's motive is to proclaim the gospel there, God won't let him do it. So Acts chapter 16 lets us know that God gives Paul a vision. And in this vision, he tells him through a man from Macedonia, you need to go to Macedonia, which is another territory way out, well, from your perspective, way out over here. And it's, it's off the Mediterranean Sea. It's, it's a Roman colony um, area. And so Paul because God gave him a vision, and thankfully that God didn't strike him blind again, decides that he's going to go to Macedonia with Silas. So they set out for there. Well, they, they, they come to a city called Philippi, which is the same city that this letter uh, was written to a church in that city. And so they get to Philippi, and Paul and Silas decide that they're going to proclaim the gospel there. And while they're in this city, they determine that it would be wise to actually go just outside the gates and meet people who um, might be praying out there or whatever. And they run across this woman named Lydia. Uh, Lydia becomes the first Christian in Philippi, probably even Macedonia, not really sure. But she was, just do- she was literally doing her laundry. She was, she was washing her clothes outside the city. And so Paul and Silas, they meet this woman, they proclaim to her the gospel. They say, by the way, Lydia, you're a sinner, but Jesus absorbs your sin. And God punishes Jesus for your sin. And so now you don't die. Jesus died. You need to accept this. This is good news. And Acts 16 says that God opened up Lydia's heart to understand what they were saying. And to actually believe. So with this gift of faith, Lydia becomes the first person converted in all of Macedonia, certainly all of Philippi. Paul and Silas, they re-enter the city, and as they're walking through it, they they stumble across this demon-possessed woman who, through the power of this demon, is able to tell fortunes. So these two men, these two entrepreneurs, they, they, they use her to make money off of this special gift that she has. And so while she's following Paul and Silas around Philippi, she's taunting them and who knows what else. But Paul gets really frustrated and irritated and he turns to her and casts out this demon. Our two entrepreneurs are a little frustrated because all of their capital is gone. And so they have Paul and Silas thrown in prison. Now, just as an, as an aside, I like to point out that I think that Drugs, alcoholism, violence, gangs, these are big problems in urban areas, and I know that you want to eradicate those things, but I just think that it might be a little counterproductive to say the guy who's casting out demons from our city should be in prison. He's a menace to society. It it just doesn't make too much sense. So they're in prison, and while they're there, Paul and Silas proclaim the gospel again. And they start singing songs in their prison cell so that everybody hears until that night an earthquake hits and opens the doors the jailer is freaking out because obviously everybody would have left he's going to kill himself because well that's probably what he's going against anyway and as he's about to take the plunge paul and silas scream out from the darkness no don't kill yourself please don't don't do that um and and then the jailer the first question he asks isn't why didn't you leave the first question he asks is what should i do to be safe He's heard Paul and Silas proclaiming the gospel through songs and certainly through talking to different prisoners. 
So Paul and Silas tell him, this is what you do to, to be safe. You believe Jesus. Jesus died for your sin. And the jailer becomes the second Christian in, in Philippi. And then the jailer goes home, and he proclaims the gospel to his wife, and she becomes the third Christian. And then they tell the gospel to their kids at dinner. And so they've got an actual family of Christians, and they all get baptized. And, and those, are, those are the first Christians in Philippi. And, and, and probably even the founding members of the Philippian church. So, Paul, several years later, I'm not really sure how much later, he writes to this church a letter. And in this letter, he explains a circumstance that he finds himself in that they're all well aware Paul has a tendency to get into. He's in prison again. And, and so he's explaining to them his thoughts concerning his time in jail and, and what this means for the gospel and, and all of that. So I'm going to read that portion of this letter from a pastor talking to his first church plant. They, they support him. They give him money to go out and plant other churches, and now he's in jail. And to see what he has to say to them, I think will be really helpful for us. Before I do that, I, I do want to pray real quick to kind of calm down a little bit. Um, so let me, let me do that. Um, Jesus, I thank you for your gospel and thank you for, for offering yourself willingly and humbly and for proclaiming the gospel amid trial and suffering and pain, for taking that on yourself voluntarily. I pray that um, you would give me the right words to say that I wouldn't say anything that I don't know anything about and that I wouldn't say anything presumptuously. And I pray that, um, that you, you would open hearts to hear this difficult truth. And in Jesus' name, in your name, I pray. Amen. I've got to drink some water. I'm really thirsty. Um, I haven't quite figured out how to do the casual water sip while you're talking. It's a little difficult. Um, I can't do it at parties. I mean, I just sit there and I'm like, oh, sweet. All right, now we can continue the conversation. Um, anyway, okay. So as we're going through this text, Philippians 12, or 1, 12 through 18, I'm going to ask one question. And in order to answer that one question, I'm going to ask two questions. And in order to answer those two questions, I'm actually going to answer them. And then I'm going to hope that those two answers actually make one answer to the first overarching question. Does that make sense? Probably not. Okay. Well, the overarching question I want to ask uh, concerns why Paul says, well, let me just read this. Let me just read this. Starting with verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, this is Paul speaking, that what has happened to me, prison, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel, 
The former proclaimed Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Well, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. My question, the, the, the overarching question I want to ask is, what does it mean to rejoice whenever the gospel of Jesus is proclaimed? What does that mean? But that's such a broad question, I think. So that's why I'm asking two more questions to make it more confusing. I want to know two other things that I think will clarify this. Because, see, Paul says, I rejoice in the gospel whenever it's proclaimed at the end of two difficult paragraphs. He is in prison. Men are trying to afflict him. But he rejoices in, in amid those circumstances. See, it's easy for us to say, yeah, I rejoice whenever the gospel is proclaimed. I love the gospel. But yet we don't really take into consideration that maybe loving the gospel includes prison and affliction. So for Paul to say this, he's not just saying, I love the gospel that makes me feel good. I'm not loving the gospel that makes me feel secure. He says, I, I love the gospel and I rejoice when it's proclaimed, even though right now I'm in prison. Even though right now men are trying to afflict me by proclaiming the gospel that I want to proclaim. You see, this is more complicated than, than just what does it mean to rejoice in the proclamation of Jesus. So we've got to answer two questions. The first question is, what does prison have to do with rejoicing in the proclamation of Jesus? How does this fit, Paul? I think... It's easy for us to get a little distance, kind of like an armchair quarterback. You watch your favorite team on TV, and you're able to say, without ever having played a game of football in your life, what the proper techniques are to throw a ball or what the proper running pattern should be for this situation. It's really easy for us to do that because we see it from a distance, and we don't actually have to deal with it. I think it might be similar with this with Paul. Am I popping? Okay. It might be similar with Paul here, where we say, oh yeah, prison, that's what you're supposed to do, Paul. Good job. You're a Christian. You can preach sermons. Way to go. But let's, really, let's really look into this. I mean, I don't guess I should have to say, but prison isn't fun. I mean, it does involve pain. It does involve affliction of some kind. I'm sure the food isn't exactly five stars. But but these Philippians, they look at Paul and they say, okay, Paul's proclaiming the gospel. Not the Philippians, excuse me, Paul's friends. They look at Paul and they say, Paul's proclaiming the gospel. And now he's in prison. We'll proclaim the gospel too. There's nothing to be afraid of. That's what verse 14 kind of makes clear. They're They're fearless. They see Paul, he's in prison for doing what they want to do, so they do it and they expect that nothing bad, there's nothing to be ashamed of, there's nothing to be worried about here. But if we back up, it says, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. 
They look at Paul's time in prison, and Paul looks at his time in prison, and they both say, all right, um, it's for the advance of the gospel, and it's for Christ. There's nothing to be afraid of. We're talking serious affliction. I mean, it's it's prison. But I think it can even extend beyond just thinking about prison and, and go into any situation. Paul was shipwrecked twice. I, I don't think he's setting that aside and saying, no, this only applies to when I'm in jail, that I rejoice in the proclamation of the gospel. As Christians, I, I think we have an understanding of the gospel that says, Jesus loves me, he died for me, therefore, he doesn't want anything bad to happen to me. And he wants my life to be great. And my job will always be fun. And, and, and my relationships with my family will never be weird. Everything will be perfect because I'm a Christian now. And we joke around, we say, yeah, you know, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. And, um, you know, my best life is later or whatever. We say that jokingly, but when it gets down to it and we actually deal with real pain and, and, and things that should draw us from Christ, like in Paul's case, prison, but in our case, troubled jobs, messed up marriages, and just weird relationships. We want to say that, that that has nothing to do with the gospel. Jesus does not want that for me. And what we really don't want to say is that it might be for Christ that certain situations, no, that all situations come up in our lives. That all things that might cause us to hurt might be for Christ. That's difficult to accept. But I think, and I, no, I know it is true. Paul, he writes to the church in Corinth, in another one of his letters, he says that he had a thorn in his flesh, and and he begged Jesus to to take it out, to heal him of this. And we don't know what it was, but thorns are painful. I mean, I'm assuming. But Jesus wouldn't take it out, and Jesus' answer was no, because my power is made perfect in your weakness, Paul. Paul. But the gospel understanding that we want to force into every situation is that, no, Jesus doesn't want me to hurt. He, he will take that out. And sometimes he, he won't. Sometimes he doesn't. And the thing we have to come to grips with is that maybe it's actually for him. Because we, we think that somehow pain... Just doesn't fit into the gospel. But you know, Acts four twenty three. You don't have to turn. I'll, I'll read it. It, uh, it it says this that this is just after the early church has been persecuted and they're they're dealing with a lot of frustrating situations, I guess. And they gather together and they they say this with each other. They they pray this when when they'd heard about the release of some of their friends from um, the Jewish leaders who were trying to get them in prison and all. When they heard about that, they lifted their voices together to God and they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, 
who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, Jesus. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Did you catch that in the middle of that? That the murder of Jesus was part of God's plan? Did you catch that? That, that the center of the gospel revolves around the murder of Jesus, and this is good news because God has written the story? We've got to get past this notion that the gospel doesn't involve pain. We have to, because the gospel is built on it. But God is still sovereign over it. I think, then you might be asking, well then how do I deal with rough circumstances? Whatever they may be, I'm not going to presume to know, you know, what, what problems you may be going through that cause you to say, Jesus, why me? But how do we deal with those situations? How am I supposed to look at that? Well, I think we also have to break through a different view of the gospel, which says that the gospel centers around me and, and you. Because it doesn't. The good news is not that I'm great, it's that Jesus is great. Colossians 1.13, maybe you've read this before, I, um, I hope so, it's really encouraging to me, but starting 1.15, Paul says to this church, he's the image, Jesus is, the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, for by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus all things hold together. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus, that in everything, Jesus might be preeminent. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The cross is about Jesus. Jesus is at the center of it. I'm not, it doesn't say my name there. And so, so what I'm getting at is not that what, whatever struggle you may be dealing with in your life isn't a big deal. I'm not saying that you should turn around and say, yay, I love pain. This is great. But I am saying that because it is a big deal, it has the potential to magnify Jesus. 
all the more. Because Jesus is the gospel. So when you're going through pain and Jesus is magnified, you're seeing the gospel. Jesus. And that's easy for me to say, I realize, because, you know, I haven't gone through a lot of pain. But I, I don't think it's too much of a stretch for me to look in the scripture and see this. Paul is saying, my time in prison is for Jesus. It's for the advance of the gospel because that's what I want to proclaim is Jesus. And if my pain is part of the story, as it was part of Jesus' first telling of the story, then I rejoice in that. I rejoice in that. I think we have to, we have to see through the lens of the cross when we look at Everything. Everything. It doesn't make things hurt less. It doesn't make situations better. But with Paul, we can rejoice when we see the gospel more clearly through every situation we find ourselves in. And, and I think it applies even further than that to, to good situations. To normal everyday life, Lydia was doing laundry when Paul and Silas met her. And she became the first Christian in an entire country. Helped start a church that helped start other churches by providing money for Paul. I mean, I, I just... I think that this applies really broadly. And part of this proclamation of the gospel amid any situation, because I know it's, it's easy to kind of think in this abstract way and say that, well, Jesus is proclaimed in every situation. There you go. How does that play out? I think it can play out literally where Jesus is actually proclaimed, I think it can also play out symbolically, and I'll explain what I mean. See, when I, when I go to college, when I go back to Athens, I, I enjoy being in Columbus. I enjoy being at home. I enjoy having my own bed and free food and, and my family, my family too, and my girlfriend. And I, I, you know, I like being here. And I don't like leaving here. But when I go to Athens, if I have a view of the gospel that says that that this this moving is bad for me, that says this isn't what I want, that that's wrong. It's not the gospel. But, but when I, I leave here and I say, okay, this is for Christ. This is for the advance of the gospel. And then I see the gospel in that. And the gospel, it's what gives me life. I, I'm, I can't be drawn away from that. 
even in the midst of leaving somewhere that I love, I can still say in joy that I love the gospel being proclaimed, whether it's literally by meeting somebody and telling them about Jesus or by understanding the longing I have for my home and saying this is the same as my longing I have to be with Jesus. The gospel is proclaimed and it teaches me things and it might teach others things as well about Jesus, about the gospel. And it turns ordinary situations into something that is so much bigger than I thought because it's about Jesus. It just it goes so far. You know, and, and your, your situation at work where your boss is a jerk, that rhyme. When... Even in, even in the midst of those situations, you've you got to look for the gospel because it is for Christ. It is for the advance of the gospel. So, so then, in essence, we proclaim Christ just by living. If we have that mindset, if we understand the gospel not as something centered around man, but as something centered around Jesus, who saves man for Jesus. And it comes back for man to rejoice with Jesus. And you notice, and this is really not a major point, but the guards, they were made aware of why Paul was in prison too. They saw that happening. Paul was proclaiming the gospel to them in the midst of his circumstance. Who knows how many people love Jesus now because Paul proclaimed it while he was in prison. And I think your you know, your coworkers and your classmates and your family and the guy in the car next to you while your windows roll down. Everybody. Paul says that they all knew why he was there. For Jesus. And that, that's our duty as well. But it's not really our duty. It's, it's our joy. We rejoice in it. Second question I want to ask is what does affliction from insincere preachers have to do with rejoicing in the gospel? What does that have to do with it? We see that Paul says, yeah, in the middle of pain and prison or just everyday circumstances wherever i am it's for christ it's for the gospel and that i rejoice so we kind of see just how far this rejoicing in the gospel whenever it's proclaimed it goes it goes all the way to jail okay well what about when you've got men who are trying to who are trying to afflict you paul how does that fit how does that work paul says that while he's in prison he's got guys who are encouraged by this and so they go out and they proclaim the gospel with boldness see everything is being for jesus they want to go out and proclaim it for jesus because what might be painful for them is really nothing to fear because it actually points to jesus okay so then paul says but there are other men who look at my time in prison they actually want to afflict me by proclaiming the gospel which is kind of weird i don't really think about afflicting somebody by doing what they want to do well, maybe then again, I guess, I guess it's sort of a form of competition, a form of bragging to be able to say, yeah, I'm doing, you're not getting able to, you know, able to do this. 
But that's what Paul wants to do. He wants to proclaim the gospel. And instead he's got these guys who are just trying to be rival, rivals with him and, and are just envy, envious of what he's doing. And they want to, uh, to somehow afflict him in prison by proclaiming the gospel. And you rejoice in the middle of that, Paul. That's what, that's what he's saying. See, these men who are proclaiming Christ insincerely, selfishly, pretentiously, we look at that and it, kind of, it might be a little distant for us to think about, to say, why would anybody proclaim Christ to get back at somebody? You know, it doesn't make too much sense. But I'll be honest, how many times do I proclaim the gospel selfishly? Let me tell you what I mean. I, I love reading and I love knowing things and I like to have an understanding. And I really like the prideful feeling that comes with knowing that somebody else doesn't know what I know. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying it's wrong. But I'm telling you that it, it is selfish. And so it's possible for me to proclaim Christ to somebody, not really sincerely loving Jesus or the gospel, but because I love myself and I love the knowledge that I have and I love feeling superior to people. Okay, so, all right, well, what else? Well, what about proclaiming the gospel or talking about Jesus as if you really love him when really you just want to fit in with a culture that says that Jesus is a Republican, that Jesus is part of this society, when he's really just a cultural symbol for people to say, I'm normal. What about that? Yeah, I go to church. Oh, really? Do you love Jesus or do you just not want to stand out? That's a selfish proclamation of the gospel. It's a proclamation of the gospel because, because you're, you're going to church and maybe you bring people with you even. Do you, do you love Jesus? Are you sincere? Or what about self-righteous judgment where you tell somebody, well, you know, I don't approve of what you're doing and neither does Jesus. Jesus doesn't like that. Or it gives you this good feeling that, yeah, I'm morally superior to somebody. Or, or, and this kind of goes back to the, what I was saying earlier. What about you're preaching Jesus, you're talking about Jesus, you, you read the Bible or whatever in front of people or who knows what you're doing, but it's because you love the gospel of self-absorption where Jesus is all about you. It's easy to proclaim that gospel, and it's easy to proclaim it with terms directly from the Bible. Because let's face it, it's not, it's not like it's not there. I mean, Jesus does love us. Jesus, he, I mean, he does work all things for the good of those who love him, right? But when it starts becoming your best life now, and, and everything is great, and I love proclaiming the gospel because my life is awesome, and Jesus loves me, that's, that's a different that is self-centered. That is selfish. And it's an insincere proclamation of the gospel, even though it is a proclamation of the gospel. What about using the gospel to justify sin? How does that work? Well, I can do whatever I want because Jesus has freed me to do whatever I want. Okay, well, No. Jesus does free us. 
but using Jesus to say, I can sin and I can drink a beer in front of an alcoholic who's struggling and, 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 and can't handle that right now, or to say, well, yeah, but, you know, I'll post whatever pictures I want on Facebook because it doesn't matter. That's not up to me. Jesus gave me freedom to do this, but not really sincerely thinking about the gospel, which says that Jesus loves people who struggle with sin and don't need that. Easy. It's so easy to think about the gospel on selfish terms and not even realize it because we are thinking about the gospel. And we're proclaiming a gospel that props ourselves up, that makes us feel better about ourselves, but doesn't actually point to Jesus sincerely. Maybe it's just a crutch for not being a godly parent or godly husband or godly wife. And, and listen, I know I'm, I'm, I know I'm 20. I've not been married. I don't have kids. I realize that. I mean, not that I know of. No, I, I don't. <laughs> but but, but neither, did, neither did Paul. And he speaks pretty plainly to married people and, and adults and young people and men and women. So know that I'm not, I'm not trying to act like a jerk, but I mean, just really think about this. Are you dragging your family to church because you don't want to be embarrassed that your kids might one day not be in church? Are you dragging your family to church because you don't want to proclaim the gospel to them yourself? And you want to dump it off on someone else? Are you dragging your family to church because maybe this will make everything better again and all the prison cells you've been in will disappear? You're selfishly proclaiming the gospel. You're proclaiming the gospel, but it's selfish. It's insincere. You don't love Jesus. Not fully, not the way that, that the gospel calls us. But in the end of all this, Paul sees all of these circumstances, these men who proclaim a gospel that he loves sincerely, that he preaches sincerely. He sees them, and what does he say? He says, well, yeah, and so I'm going to shoot them all once I get out of this prison cell. No, he says, yeah, and I rejoice. So what then? Jesus is proclaimed. The gospel is going forward. That's what I want while I'm here in prison. That's what I want while these men don't realize that they're actually serving a cause that they hate. That's what he wants. He loves the gospel. And make no mistake, he's not condoning them he's not saying now this is really it's really not a big deal they're preaching the gospel it'll all work out fine for them in the end listen god uses wicked people to do his work just like he uses prison to do his work he's not saying this is no big deal he's not saying this is you know i'll let it slide there's nothing wrong with this he's just saying look i may not like what they're doing, but I love the gospel. And that I can get on board with. And so he rejoices even amid a false proclamation of the gospel, simply because it is the gospel. And and, and Paul, let's you know, let's realize this then too, just as a minor little point that Paul's clearly saying that it doesn't depend on the speaker the word of God to actually go forward and accomplish what it sets out to do. 
First Peter 1.23 says that, um, that when, when Peter's writing, I know this isn't Paul, but they're, they're good buddies. I think they agree. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, men die, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. See, it's not the speaker that accomplishes anything, whether he's sincere or not. It is the gospel that accomplishes everything. God created the word world with a word. He regenerates people's hearts with his word. He speaks things into being that do not exist. And that's why Paul can sit here and say, yeah, I know that they're not sincere. I know they don't really love Jesus, but they are proclaiming the word of God, whether they know it or not. And God will accomplish what he sets out to do through that. He rejoices in the gospel. And it doesn't blind him to the sins of others, but it enables him to look past it and say, yeah, even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of suffering, even while I'm doing my laundry, it is for Christ. Even when people are preaching a gospel that they do not understand, it might actually be for Christ, for the advance of his kingdom, for his gospel. Rejoice in that because the gospel is good. And it's not about me. It's about Jesus. And when it's about Jesus, it it really doesn't matter what's happening to me, relatively speaking. So just know that then what I'm talking about isn't really, I'm not talking about evangelism. I'm not talking about dropping tracts in people's mailboxes. Those are good things, but that's not what I'm telling you you should be doing. I'm telling you, this is about loving Jesus. That's what enables Paul to rejoice in the midst of all these circumstances. Because he loves Jesus, and he knows the gospel is about Jesus. And that's a good, good, joyful thing. And it's what enables us to go to work. When we hate it, it's what enables us to go home when things are rough in the house. It's what enables us to go to college when we'd rather be at home. The gospel, and it has to go forward. Because Jesus is worthy of it. And Jesus died for us. And he absorbed God's wrath for our sin. And he commands us to go out and do the same, to tell others. So, the really... The answer to this is to repent of self-centered gospelism and to turn to the gospel that really saves, which is about Jesus. Because Jesus is glorious and Jesus is supremely joy-giving. And that enables us to proclaim the gospel in the midst of any situation. But it begins with the right understanding of the gospel. I want to finish by just reading a portion of First Thessalonians. Um, I saw this the other day, and I thought it was really cool because I never realized it was there that Paul writes that after he went to Philippi, blazed on out of there, things obviously didn't go so well. And so he went to Thessalonica, which is another little territory off to the side. I say it like they're little, you know, islands. I mean, it's like a whole country, but... 
So he goes there, and, and he establishes a church there, and later he writes that church a letter, and, and in this he explains what had happened to him in Philippi, which I thought was really cool. It's like, like a scrapbook or something. I don't know. So anyway, he says, You yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal doesn't spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, as we all have, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, not to please ourselves, but to please God, who tests our hearts, knows our motives. We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. I don't think I mentioned for the band to come up, but um, yeah. <laughs> um, look, Paul sees in this proclamation of the gospel something that he can be joyful about, something that he sees as a grace, as a gift of God to participate in, even in the midst of odd circumstances. So in order to look at prison, in order to look at daily circumstances correctly and to rejoice in the gospel amid those things, we need to understand the gospel. That is Jesus, not ourselves. So with that, um, I guess they're ready. Um, I want to mention that if you want to take communion... It's right there. And um, you can just come on down. And then if you want to pray, it's also down here, though we don't have any stations or anything. And um, I think that's it.